Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Join me in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 64, almost to the end of the book of <clears throat> Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 64, <clears throat> and for the next little while today, I want to talk to you about the answer to a Christmas prayer. The answer to a Christmas prayer from Isaiah chapter 64. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as we read some of the opening passages. Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heaven, and that you would come down, that the mountains might flow down at your presence. And when the melting fire burns and the fire causes the water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did terrible things which we look not for, you came down, the mountains flowed down at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, beside thee what he has prepared for him that waits for him. You meet him that rejoice and work righteousness, those that remember thee in thy ways. Behold, thou art angry, for we have sinned. In those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calls upon your name that stirs up himself to take hold of you. For thou hast hid your face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, thou art the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. So may God add his blessings today as we look at the answer to a Christmas prayer. The book of Isaiah is filled, it's replete with prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been called the fifth gospel because it contains so much good news about Christ. Do you know that the book of Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book other than the book of Psalms? Quoted more times in the New Testament over and over and over again than any other book with the exception of Psalms. It seems as though it connects the Old Testament and the New Testament together better than any book. In fact, in college, the first class that I had to take in seminary was the book of the old, first Old Testament class, that is, is the Old Testament book of Isaiah because of its importance. Isaiah gives the most comprehensive, detailed account of the life and the ministry and the work of the Lord Jesus than any other Old Testament prophecy. When you read his words, you cannot help but to be touched with the panorama and the beauty of Jesus' life that Isaiah presents in his prophecies. Remember, Isaiah is writing this 700 years before Jesus is even born. And he writes about his virgin birth. He writes about how Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles. He writes about how Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. He talks about... Ultimately, his death, my favorite chapter in the Bible is Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering servant. So nobody in the Scripture talks more and gives more prophetic information about Jesus 
than does Isaiah. Around Christmas time, we often quote those famous passages. Listen to Isaiah 7. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah is the first one to use that word, Emmanuel. God with us. Isaiah 9, 6, for us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Chapter 11, Isaiah says, there will come a, a shoot, a branch, if you will, out of the cut down stump of Jesse that will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And all of those are prophecies about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Lee Strobel, who was an author, former atheist, an atheist who became a believer, a follower in Christ, a prolific author. Lee Strobel talks about uh, imagining the whole world covered in one and one and a half inch by one and a one half inch square tiles. He said, imagine in your mind all the seven continents of the world covered in these one and a half inch square tiles, white on the top, white on the bottom, and in those square tiles there is one tile that has a red bottom. Now get that picture in your mind, if you will. The entire planet, all the landmass covered in these one and a half by one and a half inch square white tiles, and only one tile has a red bottom. And then you give a man a lifetime to walk the seven continents of the world. And on the first try, as he's looking at all of these white tiles, to be able to stop, to bend over, and to pick up the one white tile that has the red bottom, he said that is the likelihood of only eight prophecies coming true the way the Bible has, has given them. But yet, we don't just simply have eight prophecies. We have many, many, many prophecies that shows us the accuracy of the Scriptures. There has never been a prophecy that God gave that either has not come true or will not come true. Because we know that God is the author of His Word, and everything that He writes is absolutely perfect in every sense of the Word. The Bible and all of its, all of its beauty, its accuracy, and its prophecies. So Isaiah is filled with the prophetical information about the coming, the first advent, the life, the ministry, the death, the second advent of the Lord Jesus. Because Isaiah covers such a long period of time, many scholars believe there was more than one author. Some of you were in my class. I taught at the association office a number of years ago, and we moved through the book of Isaiah. And you'll remember a term that we use there because some authors or some scholars believe there were more than one authors. It's called Deutero-Isaiah, meaning that some believe that Isaiah wrote chapters 1 through 39, and then he passed off the scene and he let his assistant write the remainder of the book. And then there are even some who believe in what's called Trito-Isaiah. There were three authors, but we know that to be not the case. Isaiah was the singular author of the book of Isaiah. And he wrote, listen, over a period of time that covered about 40 years. And when he comes to what we now see as the 64th chapter, there are 66 books, or 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And we come today to this 64th chapter. And just before he is going to finish this book and put down his pen, he makes an appeal to God. It is a prayer. 
It is a heartfelt prayer that he offers to God. And listen, the prayer actually begins back in chapter 63, but it is a prayer that begins there in verse 15 and bleeds over into chapter 64, and it was written 700 years before Jesus would even be born. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at this prayer. Today I want us to look at this Christmas prayer and discover how God answers this prayer. Christmas prayer. So if you're listening, say amen. All right, here we go. First thing I want you to note today is the prayer request itself. Follow with me in verse number one. Look at this prayer request. Oh, that you would rend the heaven and that you would come down. That word rend means to tear open, to break open. Isaiah's imploring God and he's crying out to the Lord that he would just tear open the heavens and come down And let the world, this broken world, see God. That the world might know Him and see Him. Turn back to one page, back one page to chapter 63. And let me show you where the prayer actually begins. It begins in verse number 15. Notice verse 15. Look down from heaven. Now I want you to underline that phrase. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of your holiness and your glory. Where your zeal and your strength, the sounding of your bowels and mercies toward me, are they restrained? So underline that phrase, look down from heaven. That's the beginning of the prayer. The problems that the Jewish people were encountering, Isaiah felt as though were escaping the all-seeing eye of God. And in this prayer, he's calling up to the Lord, and he said, Lord, would you just look down at our problems? Lord, would you, just, would you just look down at the struggles that we are having? Well, go back to chapter 64 and look in verse 1. He doesn't say that you would just look down, but what does he say? Lord, it's as though his prayer is increasing in intensity. He is saying, Lord, don't just look down. But Lord, peel back the heavens. And we want you, Lord, to come down. We want to see a dramatic demonstration of your power, so rend back the curtains of heaven. Come down and help us. He says, if you would do that, Lord, your presence would be like fire that makes the wood burn and like fire that makes the water boil in verse number two. And all the nations of the world, when they see that, would tremble at your arrival. So what an incredible Christmas prayer. God, just peel back the heavens. Come down and let the world see who you are. Now let me give you a little context for this. Isaiah is writing amidst some very difficult times in Israel's history. The Assyrian Empire had conquered the northern kingdoms and is now poised to move toward the southern kingdom and to do the same thing. So the, 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 the landscape was one of fear and trepidation. That was the status quo. To know when there was a powerful enemy on your doorstep and there was a sense, listen carefully, there was a sense, not this is his reality, but there was a sense that God had forgotten about their plight. That's why he begins by saying, look down at us, Lord. And that's why he continues, don't just look down, but come down. Isaiah felt as though God had somehow sequestered himself in heaven and that he was no longer looking at their problems and that he was certainly not going to come down and help them in their problems. And Isaiah longed for the Lord to somehow come down into his troubled times and to make sense out of the nonsense 
to bring peace to the problems, to give light to the darkness, to eradicate the evil that was poised on his doorstep. And he said, oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The ancient man Job felt much the same way, didn't he? Remember Job having experienced the grief of losing his family? The grief of losing all of his possessions and even losing his health. Job said, oh, I just wish there was a mediator, a go-between that could put his hand on God and put his hand on me and let me know what God's up to. You know, the Bible says there is, in the New Testament, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And that is exactly what Christ has done for us. With one hand, he took God, and the other hand, he takes us. And he bridges the gap, and the Bible says he has become our mediator. You see, we were all at enmity with God. It's because God is righteous and we're not. And there was nothing we could do on our own merit to reach up to God. So God gave us his son to be our savior. And Job longs for that. Likewise, Isaiah, much the same struggle, he looks down and says, God, do you not see our tears? Do you not see our sorrow? Look at our hopelessness, Lord. Come down and help us. Now let me ask you, have you ever felt like that? God, would you just... Would you just draw back the curtains of heaven and come down and help me? Come down and help my family? God, would you just peel back the clouds of heaven and come down into the ache of my soul and the grief of my broken heart? And God, would you come down and would you comfort my troubled heart? Heal my anxiety, answer my unanswered questions. You ever pray prayers like that? Let me ask you, do you have any Christmas prayers that you're praying right now? God, I need you to look down and help me. Lord, I need you to come down, and I need you to help my family. I need you to help this situation. I need you, God, to give me direction for the things that I'm facing. You may think, Pastor Darrell, I do have Christmas prayers that I've been praying. And I have Christmas prayers I've been praying for a long time. And for whatever reason, God's not answered those prayers. I want to encourage you. Don't stop praying, friends. You just keep on praying. Amen, church? Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. You just keep on praying and praying and don't stop praying. You may think, what good does it do? God's not answered my prayer. Friends, it'll, it does a world of good. You keep on praying. You remember there was a cartoon about a little boy pictured kneeling in prayer, and he was obviously discouraged about his prayer life. And this is what the cartoon said, the results of his prayer life. He said, Aunt Harriet hasn't gotten married. Uncle Herbert hasn't gotten any work. The cat won't sleep with me, and Daddy's hair is still falling out. I'm getting tired of praying for this family without any results. Maybe sometimes we feel just that way. God, I need you to come down, and I need you to help me. But it's like the heavens are brass, and he shut, shut the heavens up. And he's not only not come down for you, you think, but he's not even looked down toward you, you think. But you just keep praying, and you keep asking. Listen to what Philippians 4, 6 says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now listen carefully. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Offer your Christmas prayers to God. And don't be discouraged. 
because his timing is not your timing. Just do as Isaiah. God, come down and help me. And, and, and actually, he even gives an illustration of that very thing happening. Look in verse number 3. He said, When you did terrible things which we look not for, you came down, and the mountains flowed down at your presence. What is that a reference to? Of course, Mount Sinai. When God gave the law to Moses, the Bible says, that smoke covered that mountain. And that as God's presence came there, that the mountain began to shake and the mountain began to tremble. And you can read the book of Exodus and how there was the sound of a trumpet that was ear-piercing as God would make his arrival and come down to Mount Sinai to give the law. So that is the request. Lord, <clears throat> don't just look down from heaven. But Lord, would you, would you come down from heaven into my troubled world, my broken life, my dysfunctional family, my heartache, my troubles. Lord, would you not just look, but would you come down? That's the prayer request. Let me give you the second one, and that is the reason for this prayer request. Why would Isaiah pray with that kind of passion? What was his reason behind it? He tells us, look in verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has it the eye seen, O God, beside you, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. You meet him that rejoices and works righteousness, those that remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry. Look at this. For we have sinned, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. Now listen carefully. Here's how one translation renders that. For we have sinned in these ways, we continue, and we need to be saved. So the request was, God, come down and help us. What was the reason? Listen to that passage again. For we have sinned, and in these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. So God, would you just tear open the heavens, and would you come down into our world, and would you help us? Now listen, Isaiah and his contemporaries were thinking about the Assyrians that were camped on their doorstep. And that's the salvation they were thinking about. God, would you come and liberate us, protect us from the Assyrian army? But what they were not thinking was that God was in, indeed going to come and he was going to give them a Savior. Do you know the New Testament talks about when the Lord Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, that he was hanging on the cross and on either side of him were two common criminals. They were both being executed for crimes in which they were guilty. Jesus was being executed for crimes that I did and crimes that you did as he was taking the sin debt upon his own life. And the Bible says that the thief on one side of Jesus begins to recognize the error of his way. And as far as we know, as far as we know, the scripture doesn't say, but as far as we know, he probably never heard Jesus teach. He probably never saw Jesus do a miracle. He probably never saw Jesus walk on the water, feed the hungry. Now, it's possible he could have been there. He could have been on the periphery and seen that. But as far as we know, he had never heard any of the messages that Jesus preached. But as he's hanging there on the cross and he thinks about the shame and the embarrassment of his own life and the life that he lived, he looked at the innocent Lamb of God hanging next to him and he said to Jesus, Lord, 
remember me when you come into your kingdom. That was his prayer request. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was his reason for asking that? Because he knew that he had sinned and fallen so short from the glory of God. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He never says, I tried as good as I could. Lord, I tried as hard as I could possibly try. I was the best person that I could possibly be. He never says, Lord, I was just a victim of my circumstances. Lord, it's the way I grew up. He never says any of that. But in repentance, the thief says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. The Bible says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And Jesus made salvation possible to us. So Isaiah is thinking in terms of salvation from the Assyrians. But God is preparing to bring salvation in a whole new way that not even Isaiah would expect. Look in verse 6. If you're listening, say amen. But we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousnesses. Look at this. Are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Isaiah said, Lord, I recognize the very best we can do is not good enough. Listen carefully. The best of the best of the best of the best of man's righteousness, the Bible says is as a filthy rag in the sight of God. That phrase there, filthy rag, was literally rags that had been taken from a running injury or a running sore, also used of, of, of a feminine hygiene. And he says, the very best that I can do is like a filthy rag. Look at those. In fact, you might want to take your pencil. Circle those plural pronouns he uses. He says, we... He includes himself. We are unclean. Our righteousness, we fade as a leaf. Our iniquities have taken us away. Now listen, here was a prophet that God would use to write one of the greatest books in all the Old Testament. And how does Isaiah see himself? Included with the rest of the people. And he says, Lord, our righteousness, our goodness, our efforts, our human ingenuity, all that we've tried to do before your holiness it's like a filthy rag. So God, we need you. Not just to look down, but to come down from heaven and help us. Look at this, verse 7. And there is none that calls upon your name that stirs up himself to take hold of you. For you have hid your face from us and consumed us because of our iniquities. Now listen carefully. Survey conducted by Barna Research Group. Nearly one-third, now listen carefully, nearly one-third of all born-again Christians stated that all good people will go to heaven regardless if they have embraced Jesus Christ or not. Now, did you hear that? One-third of people who say they're Christians believe that good people go to heaven 
regardless if they've embraced Jesus or not. Now listen carefully. 88% in a Barna poll believe that Jesus Christ was a real person, but what they believed about him differed sharply from the Scriptures. 42% believe that while on earth, Jesus sinned just like other people. 61% believe that the devil is just a symbol of evil, not a living being. 54% think that if people, listen carefully, are good enough, they will earn a place in heaven regardless of the religious affiliation. If there is any goodness in any of us, and I say this hypothetically because according to the Scripture, there is, there is none that does good and does not sin. But bear with me with this illustration. If there is any good in any of us, any good, and there's no good in me, but if there, other than Christ that lives in me and Christ that lives in you, but if there's any good that we've ever done, me or you, you fed the hungry, you've clothed the poor, we've sent missionaries, we share the gospel, we comfort the grieved and the bereaved and the hurting we, we try to help and be kind. If there's anything good that any of us have ever done, and you join all of that together in one giant bundle, and we present that to the Lord, Isaiah said, it's like a filthy rag in His presence. That hurts. That stings. Because I want you to know, listen, there is not one single thing that we could ever do to earn or merit heaven. It is all by the amazing grace of God that Jesus would come and pay the sin debt that you and I owe to bring us to heaven. So he makes this request, this Christmas prayer. Lord, would you come down? What's the reason for it? Why does he make it? Because he recognizes that he has no good in him. And that without Christ or without God's help, he would be eternally separated. So the prayer request, tear open the heavens and help us, Lord. The reason for the prayer request, come down and help us because we can't save ourselves. And then third and finally, I want you to see the reality of this answered prayer. The prayer request, the reason for the prayer request, and the reality of the answered prayer. Look in verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, and we are the clay, you're the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. In reality, this is what he is saying, that God in his sovereignty is the potter, and he molds us, and he shapes us, and he guides us, and he builds us, and shapes our lives by the indwelling presence of his Spirit that lives within us. Now listen carefully. The rest of this is going to be kind of topical. The reality is that God indeed did answer Isaiah's prayer. That on that very first Christmas morning, God opened up the heavens and God came down to us as the infinite became the infant. And God left all that heaven had to answer Isaiah's prayer here in chapter 64, verse 1. He didn't just look from heaven. But there on that first Christmas morning in Bethlehem, 
stepped out of heaven, wrapped himself in the rags of humanity, and came into this world as the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He became, what was Isaiah's word? Emmanuel. God with us. Listen to Luke 2. There were in the same country shepherds abided in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were afraid. And the angel said, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. It was God's answer to Isaiah's prayer. Lord, look down from heaven. And then as he moved in that prayer, he's got more intense. And he said, God, come down from heaven and help us. And that's what God did on Christmas. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. When God came into this world, it was in the body of a tiny Little, helpless baby. Is there anything in all the world more vulnerable and more helpless than a little baby? Do you know even in the animal kingdom, animals would be much more self-sufficient as, as newborns than any human baby could ever be? A, a, a baby deer... Shortly after it is born, maybe a few moments or a, a few hours, is able to stand up and run, not with a human baby. Even sea turtles, when they're born, they, they dig their way out of the sand and they begin to make this quick journey down to the surf immediately after they're born. You don't get that with a little baby. A little baby, listen, a little baby can do nothing except, you know, one end they eat and cry. The other end is totally irresponsibility. But, but they can do nothing. I read, about, I read about a young couple who brought their newborn home from the hospital. And the, uh, the wife, when she changed a, a messy diaper that the baby had, uh, she said uh, to her husband, uh, Honey, I need some help. Can you help me? And he says, Honey, I just can't do that. But I promise you, I will do the next one. In just a little while, there was the next one. And she says, honey, it's your turn. And he said, oh, I didn't mean the next diaper. I meant the next baby. <laughs> That's the way we feel sometimes, right? Not the next diaper. But I mean the next baby. So a newborn can do nothing for themselves. Nothing. And when God came to this world, he came as an infant so vulnerable that he could do nothing without the nurture and the love and the care of his parents. A newborn today is, is not viable at all unless the mother and father care for it and nurture it and take care of it and help it. And the God who created the world to answer Isaiah's prayer, Lord, would you come down and help us? Comes in the most unlikely way as a baby. 
Unlikely because, listen, babies are born every day and usually it's no big deal. In fact, you could have picked up the Bethlehem Gazette the next morning and maybe it would have said, Joseph and Mary give birth and welcome a new son into their family as if it was no big deal because it happens all the time. But therein was the wisdom of God and that God would orchestrate the affairs to let a little baby be the one that would ultimately crush the head of Satan and pay the price of sin so we could be reconciled to God the Father. When everything else fails, when all of our best laid plans are found wanting, and we've reached the very end of what we can do, the reality is a child is born. A son is given. And God came down from heaven to be a baby in a manger to fix this broken world and to set right what's been made wrong. Let me give you three realities and we're going to close, okay? So if you're still listening, say amen. Three realities of this. The first reality is that heaven was opened and God came down at Bethlehem. Remember Isaiah's cry, Lord, would you come down and help us? And God answers that prayer on that very first Christmas morning when he wraps himself up and comes down as heaven treasure. So the first reality is that heaven was opened. God came down at Bethlehem. The second reality is that heaven was opened and God came down at Calvary. Do you know without the Lord Jesus becoming a tiny baby, living a sinless life, and dying in our place on the cross of Calvary, we would never, ever, ever have a privilege or opportunity to be saved. The hymn writer said, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, and all oh, the grace that brought it down to man, and all oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. At Calvary. So did God answer Isaiah's prayer? Yes, he came down in Bethlehem. Yes, the heavens were opened up and he came down to Calvary to demonstrate his love. How long is God's love? It's long enough to last forever. How wide is God's love? It's wide enough to reach around the world. How deep is God's love? Deeper than any heartache or any despair or any hurt that you would ever experience. How high is God's love? Higher than heaven itself. One author says this, the foot of Calvary's tree touched earth as if to say, God has come to earth to touch man. The top of the cross pointed toward the heavens as if to point the way there, and the arms of the cross stretched outward as to say, whosoever will may come. So those three realities, heaven was opened and God came down at Bethlehem. Heaven was open and God came down at Calvary. But let me give you that third reality as we close. There will be a day when heaven will be opened again and just as sure as Jesus Christ came the first time, He is coming again.
The Bible says that every eye will see him. I want you to know when Jesus was born, the world was too busy to make note of that. Dads were too busy at work. Moms were too busy with life. Innkeepers were too busy with booking the rooms. Kings were too busy with ruling their empires. The government was too busy in tax collection. Businesses were too busy in trying to make sure they finished the year in the red. And all of the world was too preoccupied to pay attention to any kind of insignificant little baby that would be born. And they wrote it off. And when Mary and Joseph came and they knocked on perhaps every door in Bethlehem looking for a place to give birth to the Son of God, were met with the refrain, there is no room, there is no room, there is no room. And it is like the creator of this universe was squeezed out of his creation by his creatures. And they say, there is no room, there is no room. But the next time he comes, I want you to know there will be plenty of room for him. Because he will be coming with 10,000 of his saints. And the Bible says, every eye will see him. The Bible says, when he comes, that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when he comes again... He will fully and finally crush the head of Satan and set up his glorious kingdom forever and forever and forever. The Bible says that he will rule over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom there will be no end. So the answered Christmas prayer, God, would you come down and help us? And God came down. Why would he make that request? Because we can't help ourselves. And what was the reality? The reality is, on Christmas morning, the infinite became the infant. He came from infinity to nativity, if you will. And then went to the cross, died on our behalf, conquered death on Easter Sunday, came back to life in glorious resurrection, Offer an eternal life to whoever will come to him. So when the eternal kingdom comes, the people who will be there is not those who've tried their best, done all they've known to do to be good, but it'll be those who have placed their faith and their trust in God's help that left heaven, wrapped him in, a, in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger as his gift to me and you. And I trust that everybody here that you've placed your faith, your trust in Jesus, that, you've, that you're living for him, that he's made an eternal difference. Maybe you're watching by live stream or by television later. I want you to know the most important decision you can ever make in your life is to place your faith in the finished work of Calvary. Amen, church?